Welcome to Unwinding, a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we explore a new topic of interest for a faculty member from the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and learn what makes the heart of KU beat. Whatever the topic, Unwinding explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries. Unwinding is hosted and produced by Alex Folsom, the college's digital communications strategist. again welcome to another episode of unwinding i'm your host alex Folsom, and this week we have a great episode for you featuring professor dave tell from the department of communication studies to talk about his new book remembering emmett till Uh, we touch on quite a lot of different things around the idea of memory and what it means to tell someone's story who owns the story um, what it means to put the story into context of place and what it means more broadly to um, commemorate the history that happens in our communities we also touch on the app that Professor Tell helps create with the Emmett Till Memory Project. Uh, talk about where you can get that, um, how you can use it in the classroom, or on site at some of the memorial sites in Mississippi. I also want to send a special thanks to have the Alert again for helping out as a production assistant on this episode. I want to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Um, you can also find us on Spotify. And uh, that way you get the episodes right on your phone or whatever device you use to listen and you get them as soon as they are out. I also want to remind you that you can find us on social media at KU College on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube where we got all kinds of great content featuring current students, um, some alums, faculty, cool research projects going on in the college, performances, great shots of campus, all kinds of things to keep you connected to us here at KU. Without further ado, enjoy our episode with Professor Dave Tell. We're here today with Professor Dave Tell from the Department of Communication Studies. Professor Tell, welcome. Thank you. So let's start. Um, give us a little background on, you know, how you found yourself at KU. What did you? What was your path, you know, to become a professor and studying the things you study? I was a grad student at Penn State in the early two thousands, and as a grad student there in their department of communication, I was writing a dissertation on the history of confession or public confession in America, and. I very clearly remember Googling the phrase public confession in America, and one of the first hits I got was the so-called confession to the murder of Emmett Till that uh, was published in Look Magazine in January of 1956. And my immediate response to that story 
was to say that's not a confession and I moved on to other things, but the story kind of haunted me and I ended up reconfiguring my entire dissertation to write about that story. And in ways I never would have dreamt possible at the time, the story has never left me. Um, so in some ways I've been writing about Emmett Till for the last 15 to 20 years. I think it was really interesting, um, you know, reading the op-ed that you had in the New York Times recently, um, kind of about the idea of, you know, we'll get into it later, but the signs that, um, that are, you know, being vandalized down in the uh, Mississippi Delta. And I think it was, um, it's interesting to hear that because it felt personal, I guess is what I'm trying to say, your op-ed. Like, uh, you can tell that this work is personal to you. Um, do you feel like the work is personal? In a certain way, I do. Um, I mean, the vandalism is a good place to start because the vandalism is what transformed me from one more historian telling the story of a 1950s murder into, well, I guess I'm still a historian telling the story of the murder, but it seems much more personal than it once did. And the reason for that is in August 2014, the Emmett Till Memorial Commission of Tallahatchie County invited me to come to a meeting, and the meeting was about how to do the work of memory in the context of vandalism. The commission, which is a nonprofit in the heart of the Delta, is composed of nine white citizens and nine black citizens, and in 2005, they realized that no one had been shepherding Till's story. In fact, if you start from the murder, you have to go 49 years and 11 months before a single dollar was dropped on Till commemoration in the Mississippi Delta. For some of the citizens of Tallahatchie County, this was intolerable, so they organized themselves, they fundraised, and with a $15,000 donation from Morgan Freeman, they started putting up signs across the Delta marking some of the sites relevant to Till's murder. The first sign went up in 2008, in March of 2008. It was uh, very quickly stolen and thrown in the river and never recovered. Uh, a second sign replaced it in the fall of 2008, and it very quickly accumulated bullet holes until uh, the bullet holes reached um, national consciousness in the fall of 2016. But in the midst of this sort of constant vandalism, the commission was at a loss, both for sort of how to do the work of memory, but also like they needed some historical expertise. And as it happens, one of my very early pieces that I had written on that confession uh, to the Till murder happened to be circulating among activists in the Mississippi Delta at the precise moment they had this idea to call this meeting in 2014 to talk about memory and vandalism. So uh, I got invited to spend a few days in the Delta and I'm very grateful I did. I got to hear the story of Till's murder told by Simeon Wright. He's the late cousin of Emmett Till who shared a bed with him on the night he was abducted. Uh, I got to hear the story firsthand from uh, an FBI agent named Dale Killinger, who was in charge of the case from 04 to 06. And, and I got to uh, spend time with uh, activists and community organizers who were living in the Delta and living in the shadow of the murder and very much trying to figure out how to take the legacy of violence and turn it into a force for good. And so that was a very powerful three days. And I sort of mark that three days as the turning point uh, in my own approach from a rather detached historian to someone for whom the story feels personal. Now, I want to note that it's personal in a different way than it is for the family. 
uh, Till has, um, there's a wonderful family of Emmett Till with cousins um, of, of various relations in Chicago and in Mississippi. Um, and I'm blessed to have good relationships with them. And I respect their work and they respect my work. And one of the big, one of their big concerns is, as you might imagine, they are very insistent about shepherding the story of what happened in 1955. And they are very suspicious of any historian who would come along and, and start to tell their story. As I've heard dozens of times, we were there. We should be the ones who tell the story. And uh, so one of the things that's very important to my work is that unlike every other book about the Till murder that focuses on the events of 1955, my book picks up in 1956 and follows the story into the 21st century. It's not precisely a book about the murder. It's a book about the story of the murder and the ways that that story has changed over time. I think that's really interesting, you know, in reading through passages from the book. And I kind of want to talk about the idea of, you know, the people that are really wrapped up in the story, the people of the Delta Tills family, because I think you do a really nice job in the book of kind of pointing out how important place is to the story, but also that not just the geo, the geographic locations of the things that have happened, but the attitudes at the time, the attitudes over the last 50, 60 years since the murder happened. Um, can you kind of talk about, um, you know, when you're, you're doing the work that you're doing, what is it about place that you think is so important? So I think I need to answer this by telling you a little bit more about my own journey, and that will help articulate why and how place came to matter for me. Uh, so going back to that meeting in August 2014 and the vandalism, our first and best idea was that if people are going to shoot signs, why not take the same information and put it on a smartphone app, widely available, very mundane technology at this point, even in the Delta. And not, not, of course, vandal-proof, but relatively so compared to a brick-and-mortar sign on the side of the road. And for a very brief moment, this didn't last long, but for a very brief moment, Google was involved in the project, and they offered to make us a free prototype. But their string attached was that we needed to commemorate 50 sites in the Mississippi Delta, and at the time, we only had five and we weren't sure, and when I say we, I mean myself and some colleagues across the country, but also the Memorial Commission in Mississippi. We weren't sure that we could get 50. So in the summer of 2015, I rented a car, and the director of the commission and I spent 10 days driving across the Mississippi Delta and, and out of the Delta down into Jackson and up towards Memphis, all in pursuit of 50 sites. And we got them, but we had to go pretty far afield to get 50 relevant sites. And honestly, it was too many. It kind of diluted our ability to tell the story. But, and this is coming back around to the power of place, that summer spending 10 days driving around the Delta with the director of the commission was a very influential way in which I learned the story of Emmett Till, even though by that point I had been writing about it for over 10 years. But still, I was on site in a very intense way and for an extended period of time. And I began to realize how much different the story was when you learned it on site than when you learned it from 
history books. And so I began to be particularly attuned to the way that a place and being on site influences the story that's told. So if I can give just one example of that, um, one of the iconic sites of the Till murder commemorated by a number of different agencies is Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market in the town of Money, Mississippi. That's the store where Emmett Till ostensibly whistled at Carolyn Bryant. It's the store where he was alone with Carolyn Bryant for a few moments and about which we know relatively little uh, about what happened there. But in any case, it's also, according to the sign in front of it, it's also ground zero of the civil rights movement. Um, and when you go there, you notice two things. First of all, there's only two buildings left in money and the store is one of them. But it's not quite clear which store it is because the sign is not precisely in front of either of the two buildings. And one of them is beautifully restored and the other one is in ruins. And it turns out that Bryant's Grocery, ground zero of the civil rights movement according to the state of Mississippi, is the building that's been left to ruin while the beautifully restored building is an old nostalgic gas station. And so you're there and you begin to wonder, wait a second, why is this important building in ruin and this seemingly unimportant building beautifully restored, right? And that's something you would never get from a history book if you're only looking at Google images of Bryant's Grocery. You would never realize that next door, there's a whole more complicated story. So I began to pursue that complicated story and I learned that both properties were owned by the same family, the Tribble family. I learned that the patriarch of that family was a juror in the 1955 Till trial. And I learned that until his dying day, he always believed that he was right to acquit the murderers. And he always believed that the body was planted by the NAACP. And I learned further that even though he is now passed, his family refuses to allow Bryant's grocery to be turned into a memorial to Till's murder because they're afraid it would also be a memorial to their patriarch's complicity in allowing two of the murderers to walk free. And this is a story I never would have known unless I was on site. So it's things like that that kept me paying attention to places. That's a really interesting answer, especially because, you know, having read not all but the majority of your book, um, I, I really want to come back to the grocery store because you make a you do a lot to talk about how for a very long time it was not included in the story. The story started with the abduction. Right. And so I can see how that became such an important aspect of the work you've been doing. There's actually a deep irony here because in 1955, the only people who wanted the who wanted Bryant's grocery included in the story were the white supremacists because the white defense lawyers needed Bryant's grocery to be involved for the simple reason that they wanted Carolyn Bryant to testify because they knew and they were right that if they put a white woman on the stand who testified to being assaulted by a black boy, they could virtually guarantee to play on the racist mores of the time and assure themselves an acquittal. Whereas the good guys, the, the, the prosecuting, the, the, what would you say, the prosecutors, they were insistent that Bryant's Grocery had no relationship to the murder, that the murder didn't start until the abduction, which was both three miles away and three days later. And their reason was exactly the opposite. They wanted to keep Carolyn Bryant out of the story. So I think there is a deep irony when the state of Mississippi hosted the Till family in 2011 
at the site of Bryant's Grocery and put this sign in the ground that says, here started the civil rights movement, they were actually endorsing a narrative that had historically only been endorsed by the white supremacist side of the story. Now, I don't think they knew that. I don't think they're wrong to commemorate it, but there is an irony about how the role of this grocery store switched sides between 1955 and 2011. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, because um, kind of with the idea of place and commemoration, you also mention um, in the intro to the in the intro of the book that, you know, what is commemoration? And you kind of touch on, um, you know, if you do you include kind of the creative works that sprung up around till, you know, creative nonfiction, poetry, songs, those kinds of things. And if that's the case, then you say, you know, it's been since the murder that those he's been commemorated. But it wasn't until much, much later that there was like an official uh, move to commemorate him, you know, in the historical canon, it seems. And so how would you kind of um, put that into context of of your work with commemorating Emmett Till? So I define commemoration as storytelling. Mm -hmm. Anyone who tells a story about Till's murder, I'm going to put them in the camp of commemorating the murder. I do this for a couple reasons. One, that's how the locals do it. In fact, the Emmett Till Memorial Commission takes as their charge to shepherd the storytelling of Till's murder. But I also do it because it was one of the simplest, most basic, most inclusive definitions I could think of. And by adopting the most general definition possible, I was trying to sidestep arguments about what counts and what doesn't. And not that I'm uninterested in those, but it wasn't what I wanted to talk about. I really wanted to get at what I thought of as bigger questions like who gets to tell the story and who benefits from what tellings of the story. And so by, by defining it as storytelling about Till's murder, I really tried to, to zero in on moments in time where the facts of Till's story changed, like where the mur when the murder site moved. And okay, you're like, okay, well now I can say January of 1956, the murder site moved from, Tal from Sunflower County to Tallahatchie County. Who benefited from that? And I can tell you. And, and what kind of money was made off that move? And I can tell you those numbers too. And, and how did it support a certain racial politics? And I can tell you that answer too. And those became the guiding questions, like trying to take the controversies in the story, like where he was killed, like where the fan was stolen from that held the body in the river, like where was the body dropped in the river? These questions have lots of different answers, but what I tried to do is identify who gained what, and it was always either money or a form of racial power, who gained what by telling what versions of Till's story. That's really interesting because the I really liked the the section where you were going back and forth on like where did the body go into the river, and everyone did have like their take, and um, if I'm not of the wrong portion but you know there were people who didn't want it to be almost at the location that is being commemorated so this is difficult one it's difficult because there is just no good way to know for sure either where the body went in the water where it was discovered by the fishermen and where it came out of the water and these are three different points along the river and it's difficult both because there's a scant historical record because the historical record we have is widely inconsistent and finally and you'd only get this if you're there 
it's really hard to tell where you are on this river. It's a river that uh, you got to remember the delta has some of the best topsoil on the river, so the banks are overgrown. And the only way you can ever access the river is if there's been a clearing there for a steamboat landing or some sort of civilization. So when you're on the river, it's virtually impossible to tell where you are vis-a-vis -vis county lines or proximity to cities or things like that. And this has come to a head over the debate of where precisely Till's body was pulled out of the water. And this has always been a historical debate, but it's become even more of a debate because the most vandalized sign is at Grabal Landing, which is one of the options of where the body has come out of the water. And it's that sign that has been vandalized several times. It's that site that now has the bulletproof marker. And here's what it comes down to. Till's body was either pulled out at Grabal Landing, this is where the sign is, and there is a strong local tradition that will testify to this version of the story. But the FBI, and, and the FBI knows a lot. In fact, they know more than probably anybody else. They think the body came out of the water at a place called Fish Lake Landing, which is a few miles downstream. And there's, the, there's evidence there on both sides. But here is the, from my perspective, the determining factor. Fish Lake Landing is no longer connected to the river and it's not accessible to be commemorated. And so the Emmett Till Memorial Commission has chosen to commemorate Grabal Landing despite the lingering uncertainty um, of whether or not it's the actual site. But you'll notice on the bulletproof sign for which I wrote the words, it no longer says this is the site where Till's body was pulled from the water. The new marker says this may have been the site. And I, and I think, I'm not totally sure here, it's been, a, it's been a while since I wrote the sign, but I think the sign even acknowledges the possibility of Fish Lake Landing downstream. But since 2008, when the first sign was stolen, the second sign was filled with hundreds of bullet holes. The third sign was filled with bullet holes after only 35 days. And now the site has the country's only bulletproof marker. Like, it's become a site, a memory site in its own right. And so in addition to the fact that it's still accessible, it's easy for the public to find relatively, it now is sort of carries its own, its own history um, of, of racial politics just from the vandalism. And so I think there are a lot of good reasons. And I agree with the commission in their choice to keep commemorating Grabal Landing. I think it's interesting too because um you know, when the sign was originally vandalized and the first time it ended up in the river, you know, and it's people were still going to where the post that held the sign up and they were commemorating him there with just those. And you kind of touched on like, you know, it became a marker unto itself. They couldn't get rid of, they may have gotten rid of the sign, but they couldn't get rid of the significance of that place. And actually the vandalism even increased the significance of the site. Until it was vandalized, it was simply a marker to something that happened in 1955. But once it was vandalized, it pointed in, and I say this in the New York Times editorial, it pointed in two directions at once, it both commemorated the events of 1955 and bore witness to the ongoing racism of the 21st century. It kind of pulled the story forward through time. And for that reason, I was actually on board and I've said in print that I encouraged the commission to not replace the sign, to leave the bullet-riddled, vandalized signs in place simply because they are a more powerful commemorative marker. Now, the commission, taking strong cues from their founder, Jerome Little, and from the Till family, 
really did not want the vandalized markers to stay in place. They saw them as signs that could re-traumatize sort of use a traumatizing story to re-traumatize innocent passers-by and you know what i heard them say that i'm like i agree with that so i was very much on board helping them execute their vision and that's why i wrote the bulletproof sign but uh, but as i said in the times it's good that we replace it but we don't want to lose the message of the vandalized signs and that's why i urged museums to adopt these signs, and they will. Nothing's set in stone yet, but we have interest from some very high-profile museums who may be interested in adopting these signs. I think it's really interesting, too, because in the book you mentioned, or um, you quote, uh, I can't remember who it is now, but um, someone saying, you know, that that uh, Jerome Little was creating a controversy where there was none, that, it, you know, young people shoot signs all the time and there just <laughs> happened to be a sign in the area, which I think is really interesting to dismiss it in such a way. Um, do you know, do you have any, and Jerome Little passed away in 2011, is that correct? Somewhere in there. Um, but, you know, he was very important to him that that not be the narrative, that it's just people shooting a sign, not that they're shooting till sign. And I have heard that, honestly. When you go to Mississippi, there are two narratives about the vandalism, especially early on. Uh, on one hand, the vandalism was just a product of thrill-deprived teenagers with too much beer and too many guns. That narrative becomes less and less viable as time goes by. We're now looking at 11 years of fairly targeted vandalism and not just not just an accumulation of bullet holes, but like you put up a sign and it gets shot 30 days later and then white supremacists are holding rallies at the signs. It seems increasingly untenable to interpret the vandalism as anything but racist and targeted and consistent. I, I agree with that. And I think it's interesting that, um, you know, even at, was it 2016 when the fraternity members from um, the University of Mississippi? That was 2019. 20, that, oh, yeah, that was this last this last spring. That's correct. So I think it's interesting that, you know, people are having this argument that it's just but it's still happening. And they posted a photo that definitely heavily implied that they were there not because they were bored, but because they were making a statement. So if you haven't seen this photograph, it's three fraternity brothers from the University of Mississippi posed in front of sign number three filled with bullet holes and they're holding their rifles. And it looks like a trophy shot as if they were hunting a buck. You know, they have the guns are visible, they're smiling, the damaged sign is visible. Uh, they're clearly proud of it. And as I wrote in the Chicago Tribune, this is why the sign why this kind of vandalism re registers as terror because what those boys did is that they took a marker that was intended to honor the black experience and they turned it into a marker of white supremacy and in that context i don't think it's surprising that the vandalism registers as terror for so many people and that because of that you have voices like jerome little the commission erica gordon taylor the rest of the family who insist that in, in Jerome's words, every time this sign comes down, we're putting it back up. I think that's really interesting. And that kind of leads us into the app that you helped create. Um, you know, we touched on it earlier with a little bit about Google being involved and how that kind of sparked your um, experience with place around this story. But with the app itself, can you kind of tell people what it does and, and why you think it's important? Yeah, so the app is called the Emmett Till Memory Project. It's available for free wherever you get your apps. I encourage you to download it. 
the app will take you currently in its current version it will take you to 18 sites in the mississippi delta using gps technology it will take you right to the site and it'll give you everything you need to understand the site it will give you a historical narrative that's been vetted by a number of experts including the family it will give you uh, photographs and we're working on getting historical photographs up there we don't have those yet it will also give you access to site-specific archival documents. And here we're working through the Emmett Till Archive at Florida State University, which is the largest online archive of Emmett Till material in the world. And so, and this is again a work in progress, but our goal is that every site will have archival material. So for example, if you're at the courtroom, you'll be able to see the trial transcript, or if you're out, um, where the black press stayed, you'll be able to get some of their articles. Now, the app went live in August 2019. And one of the first things that happened is the family of Emmett Till up in Chicago reached out and they said, Dave, this is great. They've actually been on board for a long time with the app, but they said, this is not just a Mississippi story. This is a Chicago story. And so in September of 2019, myself, the director of the commission, and a couple other collaborators went up, and we spent 36 hours with the Till family in Chicago using uh, a church van. We drove around to a number of Emmett Till sites, and we got to hear what those sites meant to the family. And over the break, I'll be adding at least five sites in Chicago to the Emmett Till Memory Project, so that's coming soon. At the heart of the Emmett Till Memory Project, though, we want to do more than simply take the story of Emmett Till and move it from roadside markers to a mobile application. In some ways, that would be too small a goal for us because much like a roadside marker, I fear it's way too easy to ignore a narrative that's online. It's almost like, well, it's online, so I don't need to do anything about it because it's there. And we really want to create an app that will provoke people to think critically about the story, especially given the fact that so much of the story is still mired in controversy. Here's how we try and make that happen. We calibrate the story we tell about Till's murder to a user's location in the Mississippi Delta. So if you're standing at the courthouse, for example, you'll get the jury's version of the story. But if you go to the motel where the black press stayed, you'll get their version of the story. And those are two very different accounts of 1955. And, and each account, as I mentioned, will come complete with documentation. And our goal is that as the user moves from site to site to site, they will see the story of the murder shift and shift and shift. Not radically, but they'll see little differences as they go from place to place. And our hope is that that will trigger a little bit of a, a kind of a moment where the user says, wait a second, what's going on here? And they begin to think critically about the story. Because when that happens, when people start thinking critically about the history of Till's murder, that's when, as a scholar of memory, I sit back and rest a little easier knowing that the story is being passed on, not because it's on a sign or online, but because someone is out there actually thinking about it. It's a living memory. And that is a little assurance that the story is moving forward into the future. So is that also, you know, the places you went around in Chicago, can you go to those locations and also get those kinds of stories from the family? Or is that something that's more of like a kind of a back? Well, uh, that's back a little story. bit yet to be determined as I write these narratives over the break. But yes, 
you will see the story shift when you're at, for example, one particularly powerful site in Chicago is the Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ, where the low estimate has it that 40,000 people saw Till's story, um, uh, saw Till's body as it, as it laid in rest there. Uh, the upper estimates are in the six figures, but I mean, no matter how many people were there, we know that David Jackson was there. And we know that he took a photograph that was then published in, in uh, the Chicago Defender and in Jet Magazine. We know that, for, that that photograph traveled the country and the world and recruited people like John Lewis into the story. And so the sites in Chicago, like this, this church, will become launching points for which we tell broader stories of the murder. I mean, that's really interesting. And, and obviously that photograph of his body is kind of, like you said, what really kick-started the civil rights movement. And that's why this is considered the foundation of it. But I think it's so interesting, like you said earlier, that this is a story that is so important, but there's not a lot of knowledge around it outside of, you know, the the fact that the, the people who committed the murder were acquitted, you know. And so I think it, what I think is cool about the app is that if you even download it, and just are wherever you are, you can get this kind of information. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you said that. And there's a accompanying website. We envision this. Um, and we're in the process of starting to make lesson plans to go along with it. But we envision this as a tool for students in classrooms all over America with particular usefulness for people who are on site. But this is useful for anyone anywhere. I think that's cool. And kind of switching gears a little bit, um, you know, a lot of this work is historical, but you are in the communication studies department. And I think it's kind of interesting um, to kind of touch on how, you know, by being in the work, if the work you do, there's an intersection of the memory and communication and the history. So um, can you kind of talk about, you know, the flexibility of someone who's doing this kind of work to be historical, but also then to get into the theory of communication? Wow, I, I have great respect for the historians out there, and this work has has made it so that many of my closest colleagues around the country are historians. I often get introduced as a historian, but it's true. I'm not technically a historian. I I have a PhD in rhetoric from a department of communication, and I work in a department of communication studies. And honestly, that's very important to me. Um, it's important. This goes back to something I said very early. I'm not out to write one more history of the murder. I'm out to tell the story of Till's story. And it perhaps won't surprise you that there is a subfield of memory studies that thrives in departments of communication studies for the simple reason that the stories of the past don't just exist, but they're told by particular people with particular motives at particular times. And so as someone trained in communication, I find myself looking at the way the story is passed down by people who are telling it for vested interests and for money-making gain, whatever that might be. And it becomes much more. And I mean, you, of course, you can't do this without the tools of history or the guidance of historians. But there is a story about communication and memory to be told here. And that's really what I'm trying to zero in on with a book called, and the title's important to me, Remembering Emmett Till. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting title because, you know, it's not the life and death of Emmett Till. It's remembering him. And that's really important. Um, do you want to give a quick plug for the book where people can? Is it available everywhere? The book is available everywhere. It's uh, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. If you are interested in spending the most amount of money possible, buy it directly from the press. You can spend $25 for your cloth bound cover. 
Uh, it's less than half on Amazon. So whatever your politics on Amazon are, I'll let you figure that out. <laughs> Fair. Being a university podcast, you know, a big part of what we want to do is educate, but also allow figure out or how to um, how can students, you know, talk about how students can get involved with the work that you do. So what's something that, you know, if a student is interested in this work, how can they become more involved? That's a great question, because memory work is is not just a thing in Mississippi. In fact, it's all over the place right now. In fact, I tell my students that memorials are the new lunch counters. And what I mean by that is that in 1960s America, lunch counters or swimming pools, like these civil rights sites, these were the places where people worked out their racial politics. I feel like memorials are now sort of the new places where people go to work out the racial politics. And it's not just Emmett Till. I think of Charlottesville. I think of uh, the Silent Sam Memorial at North Carolina. And I also think of the effort right here in Lawrence, Kansas, to commemorate the 1882 lynching that happened on the bridge over the Kansas River just north of downtown. And so I'm on a committee right now that's trying to do, uh, associated with the local chapter of the NAACP, trying to do the work of putting up a sign next to City Hall in Lawrence that would commemorate that murder and tell that story. And lo and behold, just last week, I took a student to the meeting. And so there are ways that students who are interested in this work don't have to go to Mississippi, but there are local opportunities. There's another project here in Lawrence going on right now, trying to commemorate the fact that until 1969, the city of Lawrence did not have a pool where African-Americans could swim. There was a white pool, I think it was at the corner of Michigan and Fifth Street, I think. But African-Americans were not allowed to swim there, and thus, and thus there was this long history of people drowning in the river. But it's a story that's untold. You go to our current pool downtown, there's nary a sign. But we're working, I'm not, I'm not on this committee, but there is right now a group of people working to tell that story too. And I think there are a number of ways locally where these stories about memory and race find expression right here in Lawrence, Kansas. I think that's kind of an interesting and important note is that you don't necessarily have to take up the work of commemorating, you know, a nationally known story. There's stories in every community that need this kind of work to make sure that those stories aren't lost. And sometimes I wonder if our nickname, is that the right word? Like our sort of moniker of Free State, like we have the Free State High School, the Free State Brewery, the Free State Bank. Like we wore, we wear our civil rights, good guy, right side of history on our sleeve. And I wonder if sometimes our prominence of Free State this and Free State that can sort of hide the fact that there are these lingering racial issues in Lawrence that need to be addressed. It's interesting because, um, you know, growing up here and going to school here, never heard any of those stories and so you know even the the story of the swimming pool i've been here 30 plus years and i that's the first time i've been aware that that was the story there's a plaque coming that's good to know and i think you know we got a lot of like you said the free state stuff you know kansas was not a slave state we fought missouri because with missourians because they were trying to make it a slave state you know we were the good guys but at the same time a very famous basketball player will chamberlain came here and he couldn't eat in the same places of the people who were cheering him on at the game yeah kevin wilmot did a great job yeah, with that story and that that story is huge and that's something that i don't think a lot of people knew i didn't know that story until it got tackled and i'm you know born and bred KU basketball fan yeah so i think it's it's really important so thanks a lot for talking to us today i really appreciate it you're um, welcome I, everyone should check out your book. It's a great book and also get the app. Can you remind them what the app is called? Again? The app is called the Emmett Till Memory Project. It's free and it deserves five stars. 
Thank you so much. My pleasure.